Elijah, we can't do this without yeah. you. And there's that like worship of that Warren Ellis really used to exploit other people. And so now knowing who Warren Ellis is, you realize that it's all a facade and that the benevolent dictatorship really wasn't all that benevolent. And reading this in post-Trump America, where you have planetary, we're trying to uncover the secret conspiracies of the world. That's QAnon, essentially, right? <laughs> That's the flip side of it. The leader who's going to come down and set everything around. Fucking Trump, man. Like, Trump is essentially like the Republicans, Elijah Snow. Does that, does that make Jaquita Wagner uh, Kellyanne Conway? No, Jaquita <laughs> Wagner is much more of a doer. She'd be like a competent version of Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't get that image out of my head. And the drummer is Ooh. Steve Bannon. Now I can't read this ever again. <laughs> when in the late 90s where up-and-coming creators like Warren Ellis and Joss Whedon used a rising fame to reshape a generation of pop culture? Ah, yes, the 90s. When you and I peaked, Roman, I was reading Joe Matarera comics after day laboring in the Walnut Orchard, and you were dealing drugs at your local Del Taco or catching up on the real-world Road Rules Challenge. I was more of a TRL guy, but like the sci-fi archaeologists that we were, unearthing the secret history of genre fiction... Other creators like Warren Ellis were instrumental in veering the fandom away from Marvel and DC's mainstream superhero tropes, charting a course for decades of popular TV, comics, and film. Everything these guys touched provoked a critical response. They could do no wrong. Moral, upstanding people they were then, just as they are today. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not the case. So how about this time we pressure test the cringy concept of cutting content consumption from creators consumed in controversy. Say that three times really fast. (sighs) So it goes without saying that Warren Ellis is a troubling figure. And as we touched on in last week's review of Moon Knight and Karnak, recently surfaced allegations of Ellis's sexual misconduct from the early 2000s create an inescapable filter through which we can't help but view his past work. (sighs) You sure you guys want to do this? Game on! I'm Robin Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes who really hate the fact that so many great artists become assholes who can't keep it in their pants. For real people, why can't it be Kenny G? <laughs> so this week, we are talking about Planetary, written by the now controversial Warren Ellis and drawn by the always astonishing John Cassidy, who in hindsight really has bad taste in comic book partners. Uh, Planetary broke onto the comic scene in 1998 and was unlike anything anyone had seen before, running sporadically for just 27 issues from 1998 to 2009. Holy shit, do the math. That is a long time to wait between monthly issues. Yeah, and as a result, like many comics fans, I don't think I actually ever completely read Planetary. I just caught up with it every now and again, like an old, weird, sometimes troubling friend. So I'm not going to lie, it was nice to sit down with it in one go this past week, as many would argue that Planetary is one of the greatest comics created at the turn of the century. And even reclusive comics great Alan Moore came out of his Wiccan cave to shower his overflowing praise. Imagine I'm saying this with a deep English accent. (laughs) 
During a period when many comics seem to have lapsed into an exhausted mire or else go blundering on ahead without the merest shred of a coherent plan, the work in Planetary has a glow and a freshness that is all its own. A signature eruption of the neurons into novel, interesting patterns at the turn of each new page. It is at once concerned with everything that comics were and everything that comics could be, all condensed into a perfect jeweled and fractal snowflake. Get a room, Mr. Moore. So (laughs) Planetary follows the eponymous Planetary Corporation, a global organization dedicated to unearthing the secret histories and mysteries of the world. With seemingly unlimited resources at their disposal, the company's investigative field team consists of the powerhouse Jaquita Wagner, Techno Wiz, the drummer, and the mysterious Elijah Snow. Oh yeah, in reality, altering Ambrose Chase. Rest in peace. The four trot the globe, encountering reminiscent phenomenon like Japanese monsters, hard-boiled Hong Kong cops, Dracula, giant-sized nuclear bugs, strange visitors from another planet, wild westerns, Sherlock Holmes, pulp action heroes, and even bizarro world evil dick doppelgangers of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, it's hard to tell if this was just one giant convoluted middle finger to Marvel's first family. What if indeed? It's clobberin' time! (laughs) So joining us on our wild romp revisiting planetary is my longtime friend and mentor, Bob. Bob, welcome to Quarantine Comics! Hey guys, thanks. I've been looking forward to this, and my kids were very impressed when I shared that I was going to be on a comic book podcast. My wife, not so impressed. (laughs) Who really matters, Bob? She's very hard to impress on anything, to be fair. (laughs) So Bob, uh, a fun fact that I just revealed to both of you guys, but like Planetary, it was one of our many business trips on a helicopter that I first met Ryan. So this podcast has you to indirectly thank. Or blame? Yes, Bob. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But even more importantly, I guess I would have had you on this podcast eventually, but a pleasant discovery I made when we started traveling for work together was that you're actually quite a bit of a science fiction nut. Uh, You actually turned me on to novel series like The Expanse, The Hyperion Cantos, but I know you're not a real comic book reader. So can you tell us a little bit about the stuff you like to consume? Yeah, in terms of fiction, definitely the science fiction side. And for me, it's an escape and imagination factor. I'm a big fan more of like near future. So I think it's just, it's a little bit harder and more interesting to draw what's going to happen in 50, hundred years versus 500 when anything can happen. And my model is more, I'll pick authors that I love and religiously read everything that they write for life, <laughs> for life basically. So like, Probably first got into more modern sci-fi, things like William Gibson, Neil Stevenson, now John uh, Scalzi, Old Man's War, Improx, Craig Allenson, you mentioned The Expanse, Martha Wells, Murderbot series is awesome. And then a few classics like Dune and Ender's Game and the sequels, <laughs> some better than others. <laughs> All the sequels, the far Pretty too much. many sequels. Yeah, far too many. <laughs> what sci-fi do you typically like? Because you've, you've got the, uh, a cyberpunk you mentioned with, with William Gibson. Do you like stuff that's more fantastical? Do you like stuff that's like really hard science fiction, like The Martian? Or do you have a preference or do you just consume it all? All, I'd say some things that are more, right now, like let's call it tongue in cheek where like Old Man's War, Expeditionary Force series, it's it's characters that are, it's now to 50 years in the future. They talk like us still, they look like us. There's a familiarity, there's a fun factor, but 
hitting on bigger themes. So I'm usually not reading it as things as serious as a Dune, but that's 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 the so it's it's a break. It's something that's touchable, I guess, is for lack of a better word. Yeah, what I found funny always was when I'm working really hard, I want to immerse myself into fiction. And when I'm on vacation is when I read the business books or the biographies and stuff like that. Because it very much is that it's an escape, but it's a commentary too, because it's like, let's take one thread AR or disease or something like that and project it out 50 to 100 years on what could happen with this thing. That's a lot of fun. So look, planetary isn't straight up science fiction, but it does delve into some hard edge sci-fi territories. I don't know, Ryan, what was your take on this reread after so many years? Yeah, so the first time I read it was actually like about 20 years ago. And I, I forgot that it really took 10 years for the whole series to come out. And my take on it definitely changes. But I will say that everything that I loved about the book originally, I still love. I just love how Ellis is a fountain of ideas. Each issue, he presents just really weird, insane new concept. Uh, the one that just sticks out in my mind right now is that spaceship that's basically rewriting reality in order to, to go up, in order to launch. Just stuff like that is just such a weird concept. And it's so brilliantly explained that it actually, he makes it feel real. And from a visual standpoint, Planetary is incredibly cinematic. Like some of those opening pages, there are these four panel sequences. Like for instance, when... The issue with the Hong Kong cop, it's it's the shot on the ground and you see a casing from a bullet fall and then you see a woman drop and there's a hole in her in her eye. And, and there's another sequence where a, a woman is smoking and you just, again, it's on the ground and you see a cigarette drop on her foot and a lizard just scatter away. And uh, those sequences just create just an, a sense of epic scale that is consistent throughout the entire book. So all of that stuff I loved when I first read Planetary, and I continue to love it. I just, 20 years later, it feels, it still feels fresh and, 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 and new. Yeah. Just one quick thing on the art. It's, yeah, John Cassidy has this ability, especially with this book. He makes it cinematic where it's almost like freeze frames or from storyboards that you're looking at with the zoom ins, the close ups, the telegraphing things. And a much more like, he makes it look easy way. And we've seen him do that in other books too. Bob, what was one of the probably first non-superhero comics you've read? <laughs> what were your impressions of this book? Yeah, and first comic I think I've read since uh, 10 years old, something like that. <laughs> I'll be turning 50, Arch 50 this year. So uh, <laughs> Archie and Jughead, got it. That's what we're comparing. Uh, uh, G.I. Joe, a couple of G.I. Joes and a couple of X-Men that I can recall. I was much more of a Mad Magazine guy. <laughs> so, so your parents would not want you reading Planetary. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I'd be happy with my kids reading it. It's a different time now. I loved just the world creating aspect of I'm reading the book, the $65 book. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the phone book that like hurts the whole. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what did I get myself into here? But amazing. And every, I guess we would call it book or chapter within it could be a movie. And I think that's something interesting where you just, there's an, as Ryan said, there's like just enough pictures and dialogue that you're telling what could be a two hour story and a handful of pages and everyone being a different adventure. I loved it. Yeah, I, I've said this a lot. What I love about comics is I love stories and it's like the fastest way to mainline a story. Like you can have a one hour episode of an amazing TV show in like 15 minutes or a cinematic experience over the course of a graphic novel over the course of an hour. And 
your your brain just fills in the blanks. It's like jazz when the writer and the artist are really hunting and working together, especially when it's the same team. Something that pisses me off to no degree is like when a writer and artist hook you and then the artist leaves to go do another project. And it's like the style jumps around. And and with Planetary, it's the simplicity of it is again, it's it's a small cast who have almost these like archetype type characters dealing with this weird world that keeps changing around them. In fact, Ryan, something I liked a lot more was the early issues when they were dancing around the idea of a plot, but there was no plot. It was one thing to the next. I didn't mind the the vendetta against the four. Yeah. It was cool, but I just had so much more fun in the first half before they felt like they needed to make it into something. Yeah. One thing I love about Planetary is it really is a love letter to all of the pop culture of the 20th century. From Godzilla to the Hammer horror films with Dracula to, to Sherlock Holmes to Cowboys. To Cowboys. And, yeah, the Lone, Lone Ranger, Ranger. <laughs> and Tarzan. And all of these characters or analogs of these characters come back. And it's like everything that we read about them, all of those fantasy novels, they were true and they were just hidden. And these archaeologists are discovering them and excavating them. And yeah, I, I I actually really liked how for a while it was just each issue was very episodic. And I actually, my recollection of this, and I think this is just because it took so long between issues, is that Elijah Snow wasn't revealed as the fourth man until like two thirds of the way through. And the four weren't revealed as the villains until two thirds of the way through the run. And I was actually a little bit surprised in Ron rereading it to find that actually all of those revelations happened at the beginning. So my recollection of it was that it was much more drawn out. You get much more of the of the disconnected stories that only eventually come together. And actually, I, I think I probably would have preferred it, as to your point, Roman, if, if he had held off trying to stitch together the meta-narrative. Because the conflict with the four actually is not that interesting compared to everything else that happened it's, to Terry. It's fun and funny. And again, the Fantastic Four, Bob, I don't know if it's like mm-hmm. Marvel's first family is the Fantastic Four. There's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff going on about the MCU and John Krasinski and all this stuff, but they were my favorite as kids. So it actually was fun to watch Warren Ellis take a dump on the Fantastic <laughs> Four and be like, let's pervert these like this wholesome four set of explorers and turn them into a bunch of assholes that are effectively, <laughs> for lack of a better word, raping the science and the technology out of our society. And I didn't mind it, but they didn't even spend that much. They only spent time on like the Reed Richards, the Chambers analog, I believe. They Mm -hmm. didn't spend as much time with all the characters as they could have, with the exception of like the son of the Lone Ranger, so to speak. Yeah, the... the I guess the issue I had with the four initially when I when I read this, I I love the way he he reimagined the four, especially the Dr. Dowling, who's the Mr. Fantastic analog. Right. In the in the comics, his Mr. Fantastic stretches, he's elastic. And mm-hmm. I like, you know, how he says, Well, what is his power? I don't know what it is. And he's like, Oh, he stretches, but it's his mind that stretches and lays eggs. And it is so creepy and insidious and nasty. And actually, you never actually see him do any of that stuff, which is a little bit it pissed me off. But so so I love the way he reimagines the four, but I, I felt that compared to some of the other characters who were supposedly heroes in Planetary, like Sherlock Holmes, the four are actually a lot more passive. And even though their attitudes, they're assholes, they don't seem as evil as they could be. They're just basically like withholding Yeah, they're only evil because we're told they're evil. 
Yeah, we're told they're evil versus Sherlock Holmes. He's teamed up with this group who's trying to change the world through like eugenics and stuff like that. And it's like, <laughs> okay, that's really, that's like Hitler. That's like what Hitler was trying to do. And, mm-hmm. but, and you're like, okay. And then, and then Elijah Snow's like, oh, that's bad. But let me learn from you anyway. <laughs> and, and in the first episode, first issue, you've got this group of heroes, Axel Brass, who's basically Doc Savage. And you've got the Fu Manchu guy. And they've all teamed up and they're going to rewrite reality to create the perfect world. And that especially, I think, today in post-Trump America, and this is going to my rereading of it, that seems particularly insidious also, yet those people are treated as the heroes. And so I guess even though the four are undeniably assholes in terms of personality, what they do doesn't seem as bad compared to some of the heroes or some of the people who are presented as heroes. I I enjoyed like unraveling that old guard of heroes and the shit that they fucked up because each one of them you find out in the early issues did something not so great along the way i don't know bob what are some of the highlights for you well i just think i think that's interesting overall is again even getting into the four the concept of a multiverse parallel universes and the choices and acts spinning things off in different ways i i think that's just something i find fascinating and that one event or the hero could go this way versus that way. I love the playfulness that hits on those characters that we know and love, or again, the Edison, who's this guy? But I think another thing that I thought was really interesting is it just gets smarter as you go. I think that's another reward I got is peeling the onion show. It's 20 years old, but it still feels fairly new in terms of some of the science. It's not too hard. It's not too crazy, but wrestling with physics and just enough to tease you and that it's not magic. There's some actual thing behind the scenes here that you don't have to completely uh, give away or suspend your disbelief. I thought was really fun. You read a lot of science fiction, so you're familiar with a whole bunch of different authors and their attempt at how they do world building. Mm-hmm. How, how would you say Warren Ellis stacks up? How, how would you say his way of building these worlds and <laughs> conveying these ideas differs from some of your favorite sci-fi Yeah, writers? and again, I, I can't tell if it's the comic format versus the 500-page novel format that might have something to do with it, but there's a hecticness in planetary that I'm not used to. I alluded to it earlier of... Boom, boom, boom. There's Godzilla. There's an island. Okay, now there's a, a cop coming in Hong Kong. How these pieces fall together. You're having to leap to your own conclusions versus a 500-page Neil Stevenson, 950-page, really holds you by the hand throughout and gives you you know, some more time, but fills in a lot of the space that Planetary just goes and runs with. Yeah, there's not as many word balloons or narrations to understand. I, I just randomly flipped to like page 266, where the, the James Bond equivalent and Elijah Snow are having a beer in the Ukraine, right? <laughs> and yes, you can read the dialogue between the two, but some of it is the shortcuts are left to the artist to look at how they're looking at each other. And to your point, Bob, you have to fill in the blanks of what's going on is what's the resentment, what's the history, what you, you can't see inside their heads, so to speak. And are you the use of the, these characters, Sherlock Holmes, James Bond, the Lone Ranger, how much are you bringing, I guess a question for all of us, are you filling in the blank with your knowledge of that character? Or are you guys, you're more familiar with the, the Fantastic Four, like is that in your heads as you're reading about the four? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's actually almost fun to spot the pop cultural references. Yeah. So I love, like, I like the Hong Kong bullet ballets that John Woo did so that Hong Kong 
sequence was really cool for me. There's that sequence where the two Chinese people are are fighting. Their name's Hawk. That's like a direct allusion to this director named Choi Hawk, who did Once Upon a Time in China. He does all of those. I think they're called wuxia movies, where they're fighting with swords and you're flying through bamboo. They're flying, forests. yeah. <laughs> yeah, the fact that those characters is named Hawk. I don't think is a coincidence. And so it is fun to do like spot the reference. And it does add, I don't know why, because sometimes that, that feels really shallow, right? Oh, like this is a reference to that. Okay, nothing else. But I guess in a story like Planetary, where it really is about all the pop culture of the 20th century, it feels special. He's not doing it for no reason. He's doing it specifically as an homage. And when you get that homage, you're sort of like, ah, yes. It almost feels like this is the book for me. And I definitely felt that in my 20s when I was reading this and consuming a lot of pop culture. And I also like how he criticizes some of the the pop culture, the Tarzan character, Blackstone, I think his Mm -hmm. name was. Because mm-hmm. he was Tarzan was racist. That's the big thing with Edgar Rice Burroughs. He was freaking racist. And you see that elitism, that racial elitism in the chapter where uh, Elijah Snow goes to that hidden utopia and he like Wakanda. He goes yeah, to Wakanda. Wakanda. He essentially goes to Wakanda <laughs> and he and he talks and he talks to to Tarzan essentially. And he's trying it's interesting actually because he's trying to reconcile the racism or acknowledge the racism of that character. But at the same time, it's almost like he's also embracing it because you have this beautiful woman who lives there and she's like a manic pixie dream girl and she's like i can change him and it's like really you want to give him you want to give this racist jerk at the time of day you really want to spend time and then of course she has his baby and he's gone so it's almost both like an acknowledgement of that racism but i don't want to say he's explicitly embracing it but his way of confronting it feels very feels 20 years old well so to bring it back to warren ellis specifically so bob last week we read two books where Warren Ellis just was paid to come in and reinvent stale characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moon Knight, which is Marvel's uh, Batman analog with multiple personality disorder. And Karnak, who is basically like a kung fu philosopher. And the way Warren Ellis wrote both of those characters was this in-control asshole. This guy who's the best at everything. He can like have the smartest thing to say, do the coolest thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a little bit of like maybe self-wish fulfillment. This is like Mm -hmm. Warnell's projecting his personality onto these like badass characters that he's writing. And Ryan and I spent like a lot of time like armchair psychoanalyzing Warnell's while we were doing it because of some of the behaviors. But I didn't see that in Planetary. That was the interesting thing. In Planetary, it's not what put him on the map, but it's what blew him up. So he could get paid a shitload of money to write Karnak and Moon Knight and stuff mm. like that. So I don't know, Ryan, did you see? Yeah. This yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was that, that. that. Okay. So for what? Like Planetary is a really optimistic book. It's yeah. conceived at the end of the 20th century. It's like there's new science. Everything's going to change. We have this huge opportunity. And by contrast, Moon Knight and Karnak, and maybe that's just the, the nature of those characters. It's a much more pessimistic book. It's like people who just freaking hate everybody else. But in terms of like... Alice is really into benevolent dictatorships. Like, he really is. I, 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 I noticed this. Like, we talked last week. Karnak and Moon Knight, they're really into punishing bad guys. And they, they kill all of the, the bad guys, but they torture and kill them. You have to, like, confront that. It's like, I tortured him to death, but he was a really nasty human being. It's like, oh, okay. And that's the case in Planetary as well. And 
at the time he was doing Planetary, he was also doing another book for Wildstorm called The Authority. And he had just finished a run on Stormwatch. And both of those are like, almost like, you they're know, pretty fascistic. They're they're very fascistic. They're very, fa- they're very fascistic. But, pla- but planetary's they- not. Like, yes, it is. It absolutely is. Yeah, in a different way. Of the authority, they're a lot more confrontational. In planetary, he's dictating the course of humanity, essentially. Right? No, There's no. A- but, hang on, hang on. No, 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 no. They're saying we want to free this shit and give it away to everybody, like because it's been held back. It's our job to unearth it and give it to the masses. Mm-hmm. How is how is that fascistic? He is basically okay. So my issue with with Elijah Snow is that he, maybe he's not fascistic, but he is inherently paternalistic. Like you will take my charity. <clears throat> there is that line where he's where he sees Ambrose Chase's widow, and she's like, he's like, I have a huge stipend for you. Oh, it's okay. I don't. I don't want to take the charity. Well, too bad. You have to take the charity. And, come and on, no, come on. That's <laughs> no, hang on. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn it to Bob. Bob, who's a manager of people. If someone died in the line of fire, <laughs> one of your startups, you take care of the people. That's, that's a good. Well, that's good I guess I'm somewhere in the middle. Like he's the white blood cell, and there's a, a at least a righteousness. He, he literally, he literally is side. right. Yeah, yeah. But there's a a righteousness that can be dictatorial i'm the white blood cell i don't even have a soul i'm here yeah i'll live forever get out of the way i've got a cause and i think that's the there could be a benefit a beneficial cause but it, i think it has it can have a dark side five i hate both of you well no 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 so roman what's so i love I mean, him i want to be him to yeah. be clear yeah. <laughs> so i guess thinking about this just stretching this to warren ellis like so bob warren ellis had a message board in the mid 90s so he had a social media network that was all centered around the worship of warren ellis warren ellis was this paternal fan, fan bo- fanboys and fangirls yeah okay fan, especially the fangirls that was where he groomed them that. yeah <laughs> yeah so so he had this aura this mystique about him in the mid late 90s through this message board that he curated that he cultivated and everyone worshiped at warren ellis's altar and he would occasionally come down and dispense words of wisdom and knowledge about comics and the workings of the industry and i guess alan moore light (laughs) see well alan moore just I, i always felt like he just like did his own thing. He didn't really want. That's what I'm saying. That's affinity. what I'm saying. But Alan Moore doesn't w- talk to the fans. He's he's hovers yeah. above them. Well, Alan Moore doesn't even doesn't want their affinity. He doesn't. He wants to create cool stories. He doesn't really care whether you want to talk with him, talk to him or not. He probably prefers. And Bob Alan Moore is the guy behind Watchmen, V for Vendetta, okay. Dark. Yeah, he's cool. pretty much arguably many would say he's like the wire of comic books, the best writer mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, and and so maybe that's why I'm imposing more of a fascist sensibility on Elijah Snow. That that might not be in the text. I might no, be I think kind it's like, the cult. No, it's the cult leader. It's the charismatic cult yeah. leader. So Elijah, mm-hmm. so Bob said it earlier, and I agree with him. It's like, man, I want to be Elijah. He's so fucking cool. And yeah. that's how maybe all the fanboys and fangirls felt about Warren Ellis. Like he had this persona of he's one of the best. He's Alan Moore light, but he's coming down from heaven to talk to us. Elijah, we can't win without you. We need you back. We can't do this without yeah. you. And there's just this, yeah, there's this like worship of that Warren Ellis really promoted through his message boards and that he used to exploit other people. And so his message board was essentially a benevolent dictatorship, except now knowing who Warren Ellis is, 
you realize that it's all a facade and that the benevolent dictatorship really wasn't all that benevolent. And reading Planetary today, that's tinging my view of Elijah Snow and this world that he's created. And not only that, but I, reading this in post-Trump America, where you have guys like the Proud Boys, look, I'm a planetary, we're trying to uncover the secret conspiracies of the world. That's QAnon, essentially, right? <laughs> That's the flip side of it. So the whole thing with benevolent dictatorship and somebody, the, the leader who's going to come down and set everything around, fucking Trump, man. They, like, Trump is essentially like the, the Republicans, Elijah Snow. So we've been exposed to the flip side of these these ideals that... Warren Ellis has created in Planetary and the Authority. And having seen that flip side, you can't go back to Planetary and be like, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. Does that make Jaquita Wagner uh, Kellyanne Conway? No, (laughs) Jaquita Wagner is much more of a doer. Who would she be? She'd be like, (laughs) she's a competent version of Rudy Giuliani. Oh, I can't get that image out of my head. And the drummer is is Steve Bannon. Now I can't read this ever again. (laughs) I, I gotta ask, one of my favorite things was the dumbass guys who put themselves in a steel ball and fired themselves into space. <laughs> is, is, is that an analog to something? Because, or like maybe like that first movie about people going to the moon, maybe? I, I didn't get well, that. Well, there, there is a, is it Newtonian physics? Or, or there's a, an explanation of how like a, you shoot a gun, like the, the physics textbook or this, this yeah. I don't know, you see it in a film projector when I was a kid. Like if you fired a gun at a certain area, then the bullet would You could break a, the orbit. You know, orbit, right. yeah. Yeah, but there was a picture at the end of that of guys celebrating, and it looked like they made it back, but obviously they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) This is like a a digression, I would say, but there was a ski resort that had these big inflatable balls that you could get into, and they would roll you down a hill, a a gentle (laughs) slope. And then, but, but one of the balls, and this is like, you can find this on YouTube, one of the balls jumped a slope and went like off the freaking cliff with the people in it. And they did not come out. One guy came out alive and the other one in the ball did not. So I'm just imagining. Again, it sounds like a terrible idea. Don't put yourself in a giant ball and move at high velocities. (laughs) One thing, I don't know if it was in this trade and I don't remember it from reading the issues back in the day, but they pull what you do with podcasts. Like every issue has like a pull quote from something one of the characters is going to say. And it's this like foreboding quote Hmm. that can stand on its own. And I was just, there were so many like little pleasant experiences on this reread. And that was one of them just like, and I I remember I would finish an issue and go back and read that quote again. I don't know. It's just one of those little treats as I was reading. What were the, I I don't think I have it in my, I don't have the omnibus. What like, what are some of the quotes that really struck you? Gosh, put me on the spot. This is not one, but but you are here, and he is dangerous, Anyak. And they're they're not that like they're quotes I'm going to put on my wall, and I want to remember forever. It's just as soon as you finish the cinematic experience that is planetary, you come back to the quote, and you're like, ah, oh, snap, that was nice. Here's another. Oh, actually, okay. Here's one page, the nine eleven cover. I don't know if that was post 9-11 or not it came out in 98 and it's pretty far through it but if i'm leaving can i break their stuff little drummer boy it's the issue where they liberate a little kid drummer and they have to jump out a building and that scene it's oh i remember when i saw that i was like fuck i don't remember there being a 9-11 moment and it isn't necessarily a 9-11 moment but it looks like the photographs of the people like leaping to their escape 
so yeah, some of these some of these graphics really sat with me. Interesting. How? Yeah, I, I do not. I do not have that in my copy. So I am deprived, Rumen. <laughs> in more than one way. In more than one way. Did you like this more? I know. I know you didn't finish the 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 full series the first time around. But did you like? Did you have a greater appreciation for it, or are you at at level having reread it? It's the appreciation this time. It's it's a treat to sit down and read it in one go. I'm almost countering to something I've said before. It's like you want to read it the way it was released, but this because it came out and was so sporadic. It's nice to have the experience of sitting with it over the course of a week and just really like immersing yourself into the world. So that's the pro. The second time around. The con What's is the con, yes. It's not as mysterious. The first time around, every issue was the Hong Kong one, the Kung Fu one, the Lone Ranger one, the Dracula one, the Sherlock. And this time it just rapidly accelerated to a plot. And I would have been okay. And again, technically it did drag out for two years, so or for ten years. So I don't know. Would you say I, the same in watching television series, like binging something versus yeah, we, we've been talking Every, a lot about know. this. One of the books that I don't know if it'll release before or after this episode, but it's, I don't like binging anymore. I love the era we're in where one episode of WandaVision comes out once a week. So you have to watch it and, and you have to because it's in the culture. Everyone's watching it. It's like Game of Thrones, right? Game of Thrones would come out on a Sunday and you'd watch it because everyone else was watching it. And you, even if you didn't talk about it at the water cooler, you'd be stuck with it for a week. Maybe you're online trying to figure stuff out. So this was one of those exceptions where I I didn't mind the binge, but I I like I like the episodic nature of things. There was I haven't bought like individual issues of a comic book for a while, Bob, but they rebooted the X Men in a pretty major way about two years ago, mm-hmm. and it was such a significant cultural event in nerd culture that I found myself once a week coming off the train, walking to the comic book store, waiting in line grabbing the issue and like going to like a huddle room with my coffee (laughs) before work started and just like basking in this weekly ritual and planetary did that, but just like every three years. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So mm -hmm. how how would you Bob, like would you recommend this to people who are looking for a cool sci-fi story to read? Ultimately what's your take on it? Yeah, I'd recommend it for anyone who's into sci-fi, but also just anyone period. For me, not having been in this world, not having read comics for a long time, I, I just found it as cracking this open. Just you come alive. It's it's just the, I, I, I wrote a, a Substack post a week or two about this just idea of the more you can expose yourself to new experiences and new media, new stories. It just Turns for me, it turns my senses on. There's things in my business now that this inspired me of how do you shock, like in just a specific example is I'm working on a newsletter for our startup. And I'm thinking, but people are sitting here bored reading. I want to be the most interesting business email (laughs) that I can write. And so thinking, just think, seeing something like this and the way it's written, I'm not putting in superheroes. I'm not putting in, you know, (laughs) Godzilla or the Lone Ranger, but being reminded of being brought into a world and some of the punchy dialogue, even some of the design that you see as we're thinking about how do we create things. It's really just another arrow in the quiver of life, I think, of of seeing a completely different creative format and story. 
And you had, you had also asked me earlier about the pop cultural references, if we're thinking about it. But the pop cultural references here go back to the beginning of the 1900s. How about for you? Did any of those you know pop cultural references that Warren Ellis was putting, did any of like resonate with you in particular? I think the thing that resonated with me on the references is just this idea that, I don't know if you'd call it an archetype, but the, the concept that what is... People had innovation or technology before we did. And I was thinking about, there's a couple of, going back to, I mentioned Neil Stevenson. He's got a couple of books where it's historical fiction, where, you know, an early form of computer or what if the world invented the computer? I forget which book um, that was, but it's like the computer was invented in the steam age. How would that change the, the present or... He's got another book, well, or just even like real things that we discover in life. There's a off a, sh- a shipwreck off of Greece. They discovered this bronze metal thing that they think was a type of computer. Like that's hmm. to me an extremely fascinating idea. Or and again, we we had the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came up in, in the planetary, and you know, they were out there inventing and doing things that that we think we invented. That that's that's a. F- Oh, the other illusion is Tom Stoppard in the play Arcadia talks about that a lot. I, I just love that recurring concept. I don't know what it is in humanity that we're attracted to this idea that we weren't things first. were invented before. Yeah. yeah. And, and the 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 apples of knowledge were dropped along the way and then rediscovered. I was I'm reading this novel called Version Control by a guy named Dexter Palmer. And there's a character in there who's like really fascinated. He's trying to invent a time machine, but don't tell him it's a time machine. And he's really fascinated by the concept of leather shoes. And he says, the way leather shoes, you buy them and you wear them over the years and they conform to your feet. They conform to how you, your gait and how you walk. And they have all of that information right there in in the leather. And he's thinking about how leather shoes are basically a repository of personal data. Which I thought was like, which I thought was really interesting. Well, speaking of time travel, one thing I enjoyed in this book was the premise of if we build a time machine, mm, that was unless neat. one's already been built, you actually can't go back in time. You can only go forward. And my favorite part was, and the minute you flip the damn thing on, everyone's coming to visit you because everyone's trying to go as far back into time. I don't know why that was funny. And I was like, Oh, that's not going to happen. And then everyone literally fucking shows up. Well, that's so original. That How many time travel scenes and movies have we seen? And and that was a new spin on something, an old trope. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, what? I just want to point out, I, I figured out, I think, finally, like why I liked all the pop cultural references and planetary, and even though they normally annoy me. And I think you're it's a pop culture like, whore? That's part of it. That's actually a large part of it. But it's that, like... In Planetary, the whole thing is about like the secret society, right? And being indoctrinated into the secret history of the world. And when you as the reader can spot the pop cultural references, it almost makes it feel like you yourself are part of that secret world. You have that knowledge, right? And I think mm. I think that's intentional. If you can spot all of these things, you are one of them. As a young, as a guy in his teens reading, that's really seductive. It's almost like Warren Ellis is seducing you. Yeah. Look, Warren Ellis, I told you before, is the guy who made me want to be a writer. He's the guy that I really wanted to be growing up. His The persona, the public persona that he put out was really alluring. And obviously, seeing how he interacted with people, you actually realize he's a weak man and, and how much of a put on that persona was. But yeah, man, when you're young and impressionable, 
and you just want to be, and you feel different and you're into comics and no one else is, he's the guy who says, yeah, so not only is it okay, it is fucking cool to be into this shit. And he's telling the stories that are so, again, late 90s, right? Like Image was barely a thing. And Image was when the hottest artists went off to make new indie original comics, but they were all following the same tropes of action and wish fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And again, late 90s, this was... We had never seen shit like this in the late 90s. Now, whether it be Why the Last Man or Preacher or everything that's being made into an Amazon or a Hulu show, but that that's where this is just so unique and so groundbreaking because shit had never been done like this before. Back in the 90s, it was really Warren Ellis and I would say Grant Morrison, speaking yeah. of whom. Yeah. So any any last thoughts, anything, any last fun things that we like about Planetary? I would say despite all of the the issues that have, that have happened with Warren Ellis, it is still definitely worth a read. It is really fun. It is really inventive. And I actually think that even if you do know what happened with Warren Ellis, bringing that into Planetary also creates an interesting experience. In a way, it's like as much as Planetary is about unpacking the secret history of the world, like knowing the history of Warren Ellis and trying to map some of like his attitudes and his strategies for attracting people into the narrative of Planetary. <laughs> that's that's another secret world, one that Warren Ellis didn't really want to ever reveal. Yeah, I think it's actually such an interesting point. I think with writers, and this, I think this holds true for prose writers as well, not just comic book writers, but comic books definitely have a wish fulfillment angle to them because it's like... Uh, more of a fantastical genre fiction but bill cosby michael jackson again orders of magnitude probably worse than ellis but it's hard to dig into the music and the tv shows to understand what was going on behind them but when you look at a writer or a director you clearly can do a little bit of archaeological digging and um i think this book as well as the last two that we read by him really uncover some things yeah for sure well, Ryan, I've got one last question for you. Oh, yeah. What are we reading next week? Well, I mentioned Grant Morrison. Next week, we are going to read Grant Morrison. And I swear to God, like Grant Morrison, we read him like he's like one of every four books we read on Quarantine Comics is written by Grant Morrison. So we obviously <laughs> obviously hold a guy in high esteem. No, you do. I have not brought one of his books up. <laughs> really? has it, wait, has it, has it seriously all been me? It's all you, dude. You're such a fanboy. You're probably on his I'm message boards Morrison. after this I'm a, podcast. <laughs> I'm a Grant Morrison fanboy. I'm sorry about that. Even though some of his stuff is absolutely in, inscrutable. Uh, How's his background? So gonna... Is he, is <laughs> he clear? Background. Is he a good dude? So far, so good. So far, so good. I, I get the sense he's probably, he might be a small ass, a bit of an asshole, but he's not like a, trying to create a cult of personality around him like Warren Ellis is. So he, Yeah, he's at um, the pub drinking with Garth Ennis. So we are going to be reading, well, speaking of the bad version of the Fantastic Four and Planetary, we're actually going to read Grant Morrison's version of Fantastic Four. It is a limited series, four-issue limited series called Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, illustrated by the legendary artist Jay Lee. And I, I will say it, it definitely presents a unique take on the Fantastic Four. It brings the same pop science that Warren Ellis really likes that, that's something that Grant Morrison really adopts in his writing, and he definitely does it in Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four. At the same time, it, it does a really good job of capturing the the distinct personalities of the Fantastic Four that we that are so familiar to us and that we love, and showing them in a in a strange and new light. Uh, so it's a book that that feels both very classical but also very very different. 
So that is next week on Quarantine Comics. I like strange and new things. Well, Bob, thank you for trying a strange and new thing with us. And always fun to have a chat. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And maybe I'll have to go pick up that one, too. Oh, totally. I totally recommend it. All right. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Got a suggestion? Shoot us a note. QTDcomics at gmail.com. We give you a social media handle, but we're old, and frankly, that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.